Hey, podcast listeners. My name is Art Wright, and I'm the pastor of Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. We're delighted that you're listening to our podcast. What you're about to listen to is the fourth and final sermon of our sermon series this for this summer called Confessions of a Skeptical Pastor. This is from Sunday, September 4th, 2022. The sermon is entitled, Let's Talk About Sex. And so if you're listening with young children in the car, you might want to save this for later. The sermon will acknowledge the existence of sex, but it won't um, go into any sort of graphic details or anything. Really um, wanted an opportunity to talk about sexual ethics and what Christian sexual ethics might look like in the 21st century, uh, one, thinking about the ways in which we have failed and fallen short to express a meaningful and helpful sexual ethic uh, for a long time now, really. And so I hope this sermon is helpful for you. The scripture reading was selections from the Song of Songs. Um, really, if you just open up to the Song of Songs and start reading, you'll get a good sense of the flavor. It's Hebrew love poetry, and it's um, it's delightful reading. It's um, euphemistic and even erotic at times, and so uh, informs uh, wh- what we think about um, what it, how we think as people of faith and also people of desire in this world. And so, anyways, uh, again, delighted you're listening. I uh, would love for you to check us out online at williamsburgbaptist.com or on Instagram or Facebook. You can find out a little bit more about what we've go- got going on right now in the life of the church. You can also email me at pastor at williamsburgbaptist.com if you'd like to reach out, connect, or share prayer concerns. Next week, um, Sunday, September 11th, we are turning the page and starting into the fall season of the narrative lectionary. So we'll be in Genesis uh, uh, with Noah's Ark and the flood. We'd love for you to join us in person or online. The Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis is going to be joining us for our speaker series on Saturday, September 10th at 2 p.m. That's in person and also on Zoom. More info on the front page of our website. But then she's going to stick around and preach next Sunday morning. Uh, Her sermon is going to be entitled The Rainbow Connection. So we'd love for you to join us for that, either in person or online or here on the podcast. Again, thrilled that you're listening. We hope you have a wonderful week and uh, hope this sermon is meaningful to you. God bless. Lana. That was one of the more PG segments of the Song of Songs that we could have asked you to read this morning. (laughs) Funny story to break the ice. There were few places in this world that my brother and I loved more when we were growing up than this little place called Captain Video. It was a video rental store in the small town that we grew up in, a precursor to the soon-to-be ubiquitous blockbuster videos. We, it was owned by a mom and pop right smack in the middle of downtown Warsaw, Virginia, and we loved going there to rent Nintendo games and VHS tapes. Total sidebar, my kids have no idea what a VHS tape is. Kids these days. <laughs> back to Captain Video. 
It was such a treat to stop in there on the way home from school and peruse what felt like an infinite number of choices and then get to pick one and take it home for a few days. But this one time I remember my mom took us by the video store after school and while we scoured the rack to see what Nintendo games were new that we could rent, she started up a deliberate conversation with the woman behind the counter who made a suggestion for a particular video that was kept behind the counter. Hmm. We took it home, and after dinner that evening, we all sat down as a family on the couch in the living room to watch it and started watching what turned out to be a cartoon-based video about where babies come from, about the birds and the bees. I'm going to embarrass my mom. I think she's watching this morning. I asked her this week if she remembered this, and she didn't. I don't know how old I was at the time. I'm going to guess 9 or 10. But what I saw in that video was entirely new information to me. It was shocking. I don't remember much about the video itself except this one scene where a sperm came swimming onto the screen with a top hat and a cane. (laughs) And I... (laughs) See, we're having fun already. Should do this more often. (laughs) I remember asking my parents incredulously after the video was over, is this for real? Not the top hat and the cane, but everything else in the video. At the time, I was used to watching DuckTales and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was the first sex talk. The next morning, I was still trying to sort out everything that I'd learned from the video, try to put the pieces together. And I remember my mom and I were eating breakfast in the kitchen, and I asked her, "Uh, (laughs) Mom, so when was the last time you and Dad had sex? She probably choked on her coffee. I was too young to know better than to ask. And here's what I expected her to say. Something like, 1982. Here's what she actually said. Well, last night. (laughs) Mom, if you're watching, I just want to say you all did an amazing job as parents and continue to do so. I'm grateful for your vulnerability and honesty and talking about what I know as a parent now firsthand is a tough conversation to talk about with children. I'm so grateful that there was not a lot of shame and guilt surrounding sexuality in our family. It was just a part of learning about life. Here's the thing. Traditional Christian teachings about sexuality have heaped generous amounts of guilt and shame on people for untold generations, unfortunately so. When we look back at church history, Christian teachings have tended to emphasize the importance of three primary markers to clarify what is and what is not ethical sexual activity. Here they are. First, it must be within the covenant of marriage. Second, it must be between a man and a woman. And third, it's supposed to be primarily for procreation and only secondarily for pleasure. This is admittedly a bit of an oversimplification, of course. Theologians throughout the centuries have offered various protected, uh, perspectives and attempted to fine-tune the messaging. Certain sexual acts have often been prohibited, If you try to imagine some, you'll probably imagine right. Don't imagine too hard, though. We're still in church. Come on, people. 
the emphasis on Christian sexuality has been on restraint and not human flourishing. Modern-day purity culture has doubled down on heterosexual marriage as the only appropriate context for sexual activity, although they seem to expect that desire will be fully restrained until the wedding night and then unleashed with abandon for one's partner. And yet, to this day, I have friends who struggle within marriage because of the damage wrought by purity culture. It turns out it's hard to flip the switch once you get married after hearing for years that sexual activity is dirty or defiles you. Shame and guilt run rampant in Christian circles when it comes to sex and sexuality, even when it is within the appropriate context. I, I find myself wondering how many of us have parents who didn't talk to us at all about it, or maybe we as parents didn't talk to our children about it. I don't think Christianity has got it all figured out when it comes to sexual ethics. A few years ago, I co-led a 13-week series at Tabernacle Baptist Church in Richmond on sexuality with a colleague. I think it was the best attended Wednesday night series we did over the course of a decade. We talked about everything, sexuality and scripture, sexual ethics, the biology of sexual attraction, gender identity, how to talk to your children and youth about sex. I think half of the participants were just there to see how often I blushed on any given evening. What I personally learned, however, while doing research for the series convinced me to start rethinking some of my own traditional Christian Christian sexual ethics. I already knew that interpretations of scripture that forbid same-sex relationships were on shaky ground, but I also learned, for example, that although there are plenty of restrictions within scripture about sex, there's no explicit mandate against premarital sex in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. It deserves its own hour-long Bible study, There are plenty of biblical texts that talk about fornication, which in Greek simply and very generally means sexual immorality, without bothering to go into the description of what sexual immorality entails. I also learned that though there is often, though not exclusively, an ideal of virginity until marriage in Scripture, it really is only for women. And the reason for this is in antiquity and in patriarchal culture, there was an acute desire to protect male property rights. I, as a landowning male, want to make sure that children of my own bloodline inherit my property when I die. There's no DNA tests, no paternity tests. And so the best way to ensure that my own flesh and blood inherit my property one day is to make sure that my new wife is a virgin. And yet throughout scripture, we see a number of examples of people transgressing this ideal. Ruth, Esther, Tamar, the couple in the Song of Songs. Now, there certainly was a cultural assumption by biblical writers that marriage would be the primary context of sexual activity, but it makes perfect sense when you think about the historical context. The average age of puberty is something like 12 or 13, and in biblical times, you'd be married right around that age, at least for young women. That's why we often say that Mary was probably a young teenager in the Christian story. There wasn't a lot of time between puberty and one's wedding night, at least for women. Today, the average age of marriage is late 20s, if you get married at all. 
So there's a significant gap between puberty and the typical age for marriage. Do you sense how that might affect sexual ethics? Here are some statistics that suggest that traditional Christian sexual ethics are not working. Studies since the 1950s show that 90% of married couples have reported that they engaged in sexual intercourse prior to marriage. Statistics are not that much different for Christians. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this morning, I promise. I don't want to know, to be quite honest. But when my pastor friends and I officiate weddings, most of the couples we marry are already living together. This is increasingly the norm, even among church-going Christian couples. But sexual activity prior to marriage isn't really a new thing. We're in Williamsburg, so I can't help but talk a little bit about the colonial era this morning, where there was an overt disapproval of premarital sex. Did you know that couples who were courting back in the day were frequently allowed to sleep in bed together, but it allowed something called bundling? This is where one or both of the courting partners are wrapped up so that they technically couldn't touch each other all night long, but one does wonder. Y'all are going to go Google it now when you get home. Bundling. Of course, if a couple did get pregnant, they were expected to get married, and records suggest that 30 to 40% of women in that era were pregnant before marriage. Huh. A number of churches and Christian traditions have reacted to what they see as loosening sexual ethics in our culture by promoting purity pledges and abstinence until marriage education. But the research suggests that on average, youth who make a purity pledge may delay sexual activity, but not necessarily until marriage. And the reality is when they do engage in sexual activity, they're much less likely to use protection or contraception. Do you get the sense of what I'm trying to communicate? Christian theologians have often championed a very specific ideal of sexuality and sexual activity that people have been unable or unwilling to live up to. Furthermore, that ideal of sexual ethics, in my opinion, is only loosely based on Scripture itself and has created a lot of guilt and shame for folks. And in my opinion, that's the real shame. The temptation, then, is to throw the baby out with the bathwater, just to throw up our hands and say, well, I guess anything goes then, right, as long as it's consensual. This is basically what American consumer culture has done. I was reading an article the other day about a young woman who said she went on a date with someone she met online. She wasn't really feeling it. There wasn't any chemistry for her on the date. She got to the end of the date, and she was like, here's what she said. She said, I went ahead and had sex with the guy just to be polite. It was consensual, but it didn't bring her any joy. That's a shame, too. Does the church have anything worthwhile to say about sexuality and sexual activity today? I think so. David Jensen is a contemporary Christian ethicist, and here's what he proposes as five markers of ethical Christian sexual activity today. Number one, consent. This is foundational. Notice the list I shared earlier did not include it. It's possible to be married and yet not consent to sexual activity. And yet historically, Christian sexual ethics have often failed to promote the importance of consent. Number two, mutuality. In our culture, the language of sex is often possessive. 
We talk about having sex or getting some. I can't believe I'm saying these things in church. Can you? (laughs) Sounded good last night when I was writing the sermon. (laughs) Mutuality. Good Christian sex is about giving and receiving. It entails a sharing and intimacy and pleasure and delight. There should be a high degree of mutuality. Number three, covenant and trust are so important, whether married or not, gay or straight or otherwise. In covenant, we make promises of faithfulness to our partners that we strive to keep. Covenant and trust deepen a sense of intimacy and give us a sense of security and safety, even when we do screw up sometimes. Number four will probably surprise you. But good Christian sex cares deeply about community. Not that it happens in community, but it acknowledges that even private acts can have public implications. The children that may emerge from love between two people is the most obvious example. But Jensen suggests that sex can and should foster deeper love and compassion and hospitality for the world rather than spiraling into an obsessive and inward-focusing seclusion. Reverend Molly Basket says it well when she says, good sex is sex that is good for everyone involved. It's a funny quote to me, but you can probably imagine how that begins to play out in the real world. Last but not least, sexual activity should be joyful. Good sexual activity involves pleasure, delight, and fun. In our just-about-anything-goes culture, all too often joy is not the result for a whole host of reasons, but it should be. And this comes out in a powerful way in the Song of Songs. I am my beloved's and his desires for me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. I hope you get the sense that this love poetry uses euphemistic language. The lovers are attentive and joyful. They delight in being with one another. And so you have it, consent, mutuality, covenant and trust, community and joy. This is a vision of the goodness of sexuality that we as Christians have to offer. There's so much more we could say about this topic. I need to wind this sermon down. Maybe next summer we'll do a 13-week series on summer sermon series on sex. Totally joking, worship council. I do have a whole bookshelf in my office if you want to come browse sometime or email me and I'll be glad to make a recommendation. I have podcasts and Instagram accounts that I can recommend too. But two closing thoughts. One, it's time to put down the shame. We are all human. We all have regrets and make mistakes. Of course we do. But my hunch is that many of us in this room also carry some sort of unwarranted shame related to sex or sexuality, simply because all too often the Christian tradition has failed to articulate what healthy and good sexuality and sexual activity looks like. Shame erodes our ability to believe that we are good 
or can be good or deserve goodness in our lives. But it's time to put the shame down, leave it behind and take a step forward. Because I also believe that this second point is true, that God's heart desires human flourishing. God desires that you, yes, you, God desires that you experience flourishing in this life, whatever that means, and it looks differently for each of us, I imagine. We all want and need and desire different things with regard to sexuality, and that's okay. (laughs) If you're sitting here this morning thinking, I need to have more sex, or I should probably have less sex, or to be honest, I don't really feel particularly sexual at all, that's all okay. There is no normal. We are all unique and uniquely beautiful. What does human flourishing look like for you? And what could it look like for the world if we live lives shaped by consent, mutuality, covenant and trust and community and joy? Maybe not just in our sexual lives, but in all of our lives. Life is a gift, all of it. Remember that the God who created all things said it was good and even very good in Genesis? It is a gift. And I, for one, am grateful. Thanks be to God. Amen.